This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Thinking and Doing. In this podcast, I examine logical fallacies, cognitive biases, stoic teachings from masters past and present, and tips on being better at life. I hope it will be as instructive to you as it is to me in the pursuit of thinking and doing well. Hello and welcome to Thinking and Doing. It's September 1st, 2020. I don't think I've been giving dates in these episodes like I do with my other podcasts, but let's start. Why not? This is, uh, in this episode, we're going to look at two cognitive biases. And as usual, we're going to use The Art of Thinking Clearly by Rolf DeBelli. The first one we're going to look at is Illusion of Control, which actually pairs well with uh, the, uh, the Stoic teachings that we look at from time to time. Illusion of Control, Sphere of Control, Extent of Control, these are all Stoic concepts as well. And the second thing we're going to look at is called Framing. It's not what you say, but how you say it. All right. So as I do with these episodes, um, I pretty much just read these entries and add some commentary, sometimes as I go along, sometimes at the end. So we'll just see what comes to mind. So we'll start with Illusion of Control, which is chapter 17 uh, in this book. Every day, shortly before 9 o'clock, a man with a red hat stands in a square and begins to wave his cap around wildly. After five minutes, he disappears. One day, a policeman comes up to him and asks, what are, you, what are you doing? I'm keeping the giraffes away. But there aren't any giraffes here. Well, I must be doing a good job then. <laughs> a friend with a broken leg was stuck in bed and asked me to pick up a lottery ticket for him. I went to the store, checked a few boxes, wrote his name on it, and paid. As I handed him the copy of the ticket, he balked. Why did you fill it out? I wanted to do that. I'm never going to win anything with your numbers. Do you really think it affects the draw if you pick the numbers? I inquired. He looked at me blankly. In casinos, most people throw the dice as hard as they can if they need a high number and as gingerly as possible if they are hoping for a low number, which is as nonsensical as football fans thinking they can swing a game by gesticulating in front of the TV. <laughs> Unfortunately, they share this illusion with many people who also seek to influence the world by sending out the right thoughts, i.e. vibrations, positive energy, karma. The illusion of control is the tendency to believe that we can influence something over which we have absolutely no sway. This was discovered in 1965 by two researchers, Jenkins and Ward. Their experiment was simple, consisting of just two switches and a light. The men were able to adjust when the the men were able to adjust when the switches connected to the light and when not. Even when the light flashed on and off at random, subjects were still convinced that they could influence it by flicking the switches. Or consider this example. An American researcher has been investigating acoustic sensitivity to pain. For this, he placed people in sound booths and increased the volume until the subject signaled him to stop. The two rooms, A and B, were identical, save one thing. Room B had a red panic button on the wall. The button was purely for show, but it gave participants the feeling that they were in control of the situation, leading them to withstand significantly more noise. If you had read Alexander Solzhenitsyn. 
uh, Primo Levi or Viktor Frankl, this finding will not surprise you. The idea that people can influence their destiny even by a fraction encouraged these prisoners not to give up hope. Crossing the street in Los Angeles is a tricky business, but luckily at the press of a button we can stop traffic, or can we? The button's real purpose is to make us believe we have an influence on the traffic lights, and thus we're better able to endure the wait for the signal to change with more patience. The same goes for door open and door close buttons in elevators. Many are not even connected to the electrical panel. Such tricks are also designed in open plan offices. For some people it will always be too hot, for others too cold. Clever technicians create the illusion of control by installing fake temperature dials. This reduces energy bills and complaints. Such ploys are called placebo buttons, and they are being pushed in all sorts of realms. All right, I've got to object to the the elevator door open, door close. I'm in a lot of elevators, and most of those work exactly as you expect them to. But I I can imagine that uh, there are some fake ones. All right. Central bankers and government officials employ placebo buttons masterfully. Oh, yeah, masterfully. Take, for instance, the federal funds rate, which is an extreme short-term rate, an overnight rate to be precise. While this rate doesn't affect long-term interest rates, which are a function of supply and demand and which are an important factor in investment decisions, oh, that's not true, the stock market nevertheless reacts frenetically to its every change. Nobody understands why overnight interest rates can have such an effect on the market, but everybody thinks they do, and so they do. The same goes for pronouncements made by the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Markets move even though though those statements inject little of tangible value into the real economy. They are merely sound waves, and we still allow economic heads to continue to play with the illusory dials. It would be a real wake-up call if if all involved realized the truth that the world economy is a fundamentally uncontrollable system. And you? Do you have everything under control? Probably less than you think. Do not think you command your way through life like a Roman emperor. Rather, <laughs> rather you are the man with the red hat. Therefore, focus on the few things of importance that you can really influence. For, for everything else, que sera, sera. What does that mean? Que sera, sera. I forget. Let me see. Oh, whatever will be, will be. Okay. Um... I think I think he some of his examples are pretty good others I think um others aren't so good what the chairman of the federal reserve uh says is very important because of the amount of power that he has over the money supply and over interest rates and that matters it's not it's it's definitely not nothing it's not anywhere close to nothing anyway besides the point um the illusion of control yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, we certainly, we have our um, our lucky charms or the things that we do, you know, like a football player who doesn't change his socks, you know, because they're winning games, that sort of thing. Th- those kind of things, I mean, it's not, it's not really, just to take that example, it's not really any sort of direct control, but it can, like the way that placebos work is it can have such an effect on the mind that the player plays uh, in a sense tricks himself into playing better and because he's playing better he's more effective he is indirectly or or together with his teammates uh, they have a better chance of winning the game right so there is a bit of uh, indirectness there um but not not for the reasons that the the player thinks. It's not that his, his dirty socks are lucky. It's that he believes that they are lucky and he plays better uh, because he hasn't washed them. 
and it and it really is for the same reasons that uh, the placebo effect or the placebo response, I think, is probably a better way to call it, um, actually occurs. It's it's mind over matter, uh, an interesting phenomenon uh, to be sure, but not um, not entirely without effect, as I think uh, we're finding out. I don't think the existence of fake buttons and dials and temperature controls and things like that are as uh, are as common as he makes it out to be. I really don't. I've 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 used these things before, and I know for sure that they respond as as I expected them to. Um, okay, I don't really have much more to say about that one, so let's go to the next one. This is out of chapter forty-two. It's not what you say, but how you say it. Uh, the cognitive bias is called framing. All right, here we go. Consider these two statements. The first one, hey, the trash can is full. The second one, it would be really great if you could empty the trash, honey. It's not what you say, but how you say it. If a message is communicated in different ways, it will also be received in different ways. In psychologist jargon, this technique is called framing. We react differently to identical situations depending on how they are presented. Kahneman and Versky conducted a survey in the 1980s in which they put forward two options for an epidemic control strategy. The lives of 600 people were at stake, they told participants. Option A saves 200 people. Option B offers a 33% chance that all 600 people will survive and a 66% chance that no one will survive. Although options A and B were comparable with 200 survivors expected, the majority of respondents chose A, remembering the adage, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. It became really interesting when the same options were reframed. Option A kills 400 people. Option B offers a 33% chance that no one will die, and with a 66% chance that all 600 will die. This time, only a fraction of respondents chose A, and the majority picked B. The researchers observed a complete U-turn from almost all involved. Depending on the phrasing, survive or die, the respondents made completely different decisions. That's interesting. Another example, researchers presented a group of people with two kinds of meat, 99% fat-free and 1% fat, and asked them to choose which was healthier. Can you guess which they picked? Bingo, respondents ranked the first type of meat as healthier, even though both were identical. Next came the choice between 98% fat-free and 1% fat. Again, most respondents chose the first option, (laughs) despite its higher fat content. Well, fat fat is good for you, so... Glossing is a popular type of framing. Under its rules, a tumbling share price becomes a correction. An overpaid acquisition price is branded goodwill. In every management course, a problem magically transforms into an opportunity or a challenge. A person who's fired is reassessing his career. A fallen soldier, regardless of how much bad luck or stupidity led to his death, turns into a war hero. (laughs) Genocide translates to ethnic cleansing. A successful emergency landing, for example, on the Hudson River, is celebrated as a triumph of aviation. Shouldn't a textbook landing on a runway count as an even bigger triumph of aviation? That was a parenthetical. Have you ever looked more closely at the prospects or the prospectus for financial products, for example, ETFs, exchange-traded funds? Generally, the brochure illustrates the product's performance in recent years, going back just far enough for the nicest possible upward curve to emerge. This is also framing. Another example is a simple piece of bread. Depending on how it is framed, as either the symbolic or the true body of Christ, it can split a a religion. 
as happened in the 16th century with the Reformation. Framing is used to good effect in commerce, too. Consider used cars. You're led to focus on just a few factors, whether the message is delivered through a salesman, a sign touting certain features, or even your own criteria. For example, if the car has the low mileage and good tires, you're home, you're, you, you, hone in, uh, you home in on this and overlook the state of the engine, the brakes, or the interior. Thus, the mileage and tires become the main selling points and frame our decision to buy. Such oversight is only natural, though, since it is difficult to take in all possible pros and cons. Interestingly, had other frames been used to tout the car, you might have decided very differently. Authors are conscious framers, too. A crime novel would be rather dull if, from page one, the murderer was shown as it happened, stab by stab, as it were. Even though we eventually discover the motives and murder weapons, the novelist's framing injects thrills and suspense into the story. In conclusion... Realize that whatever you communicate contains some element of framing, that every fact, even if you hear it from a trusted friend or read it in, in a reputable newspaper, is subject to this effect too, even this chapter. <laughs> um, there was a show on television called Law and Order Criminal Intent that always started the episode showing the murder or the crime. It showed It showed it happened, it showed who did it, and then the rest of the episode was the detectives trying to come around to that. And I found that to be a very enjoyable show. So, you know, this idea, I mean, he talks about the crime novel and how it would be dull if they showed the murder as it happened on page one. But that's what the show did, and they made it work. Um, at some point, they they switched up the, the characters and the actors, and I didn't, I didn't really care for that. I liked the original, uh, the original people. Anyway... Um, framing is one of those things, um, that is very pernicious and extremely common. It's, I mean, I don't know that you could take any given news article, whether it's Fox or MSNBC or CNN or the Times or the Post or anything and not detect. If you, if you look closely, sometimes you got to look closer than others, you, uh, not detect framing. Um, and framing often will reveal the writers or the, the journalists, uh, biases, right? It'll reveal what the person who write, who is writing it finds important first, what they find important. And second, how they want to present that, those important elements in order to tell their story. So understanding framing and even particular, um, the type of framing he called glossing, um, which employs euphemisms, right? Where he says, a uh, the, you know, some, some, some fallen soldier could have, um, could have been really stupid and that's what led to his death, but now we're calling him a war hero. Uh, so that's, that would be glossing. Maybe euphemisms a bit different. Um, but it, it's important because it can, it can totally change the way people understand the story. Okay. And, and through the use of framing, you could make, you could make somebody, um, who it might be the hero in the story. You could turn them into the villain or vice versa. Somebody who is really the villain, you could make them look like the hero. This happens all the time, especially as it involves politicians and other leaders and important people. So I think it's really important to be aware of this, um, this trick of framing. And I guess in a sense, in a way we can even, we can even based on 
the sources we read, uh, based on the people that we, you know, the commentators and the pundits and the, the journalists that we favor, we can, in a sense, frame things through them for ourselves. Um, I think that's really common too, right? There are people that choose to sit in front of uh, CNN all day long and get all of their news from that one source. So that source engages in its own framing throughout, you know, every story it tells. But that person choosing to say, I'm only going to bring in what CNN says is also engaged in, in framing. Um, and they're, they're really fooling themselves probably most of the time. Okay. I think that's going to do it for this episode. We looked at the illusion of control and we looked at framing. So that's what I'll tell, that's uh, what I'll title the episode and that'll do it. Thanks so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to thinkinganddoingpodcast at gmail.com. Will you do me a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. 